Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sunday morning to gather together, but in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for the truth of these words from the pages of Scripture. We know you as you've revealed yourself as the God, not only of creation, but the God of redemption. Lord, I ask that you even now be putting our mind in the right place to soak up from you and your word what was described as awesome wonder that we would behold your holiness, your greatness as our Savior and as our Creator. Lord, take this passage today a familiar passage, one that we'll have to work on to make sure that we look at it afresh. But Lord, we, we want to hear from you. We've heard from so many other people in the coming past days. Lord, today we ask that we hear from you. We thank you for this congregation, its body of believers. Lord, I'm sure there are so many cares and requests and heartaches, problems. Lord, may we give them all to you. And Lord, may we be found faithful. If nothing more, during this time where we're here at your feet, to hear your instruction, to be encouraged by your truth, to encourage one another but to worship you in spirit and truth. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you on another Sunday morning. And um, whether you're visiting with us by live stream or here in this room, it's always good to see faces and um, to thank you for your faithfulness. I'd like to talk to you by way of an announcement here at the beginning about some plans we have for Easter Sunday. Uh, but I thought before I'd, I'd do that, I would make mention that if any of you heard a rumor that I took a fall this past week and uh, that I broke my wrist in doing so, um, I'm here to tell you that those rumors are absolutely true. Um, <laughs> I, I did, and um, I fell from what, what could be generally described as a skateboard. Um, see, you're laughing worse now. <laughs> to, to be technical, it's a, it's a one-wheeled balance board with sophisticated circuitry to help balance one wheel between my two feet. It's got about a two-horsepower electric motor with an eight-mile range and a top speed of about 15 miles an hour. And is the most fun I've had during midlife <laughs> that I can think of. And I've fallen a lot of times. It's just this time I fell the right way or the wrong way. The doctor said it was the right way. I say it was the wrong way. But I broke both the, uh, the bones in my arm up against the wrist I have an appointment with uh, the doctor to make sure it's healing correctly and there's no surgery needed. And they've outfitted me with this nice uh, removable hard cast. I think the Lord knew that if it wasn't removable, I'd lose my mind before the end of the six weeks. 
and you'd be looking for somebody to listen to. But uh, I say all that just to give you something to smile about and to thank you for your taking care of me, uh, but particularly for your sympathy for my bride over here who has to take up quite a bit of slack <laughs> during the next few weeks. It's good for me. It's the cost, the price of adventure. At least that's what I'm saying. Um, so let's talk about Easter. We're about um, a month away. And the same concern we had during Christmas in not being able to accommodate all that would want uh, to attend Easter service on Easter Sunday morning. Um, our plan at this point, uh, should we get the weather we need to pull it off, is to meet outdoors. And this would be behind the FLC. We've got a large flat field out there that needs to dry out. And we need about uh, 60 degrees, so we're not worried about warmth more than we are uh, paying attention to the service. If we get the weather we need, we've got about, uh, we've got over 300 folding chairs. And uh, we'll seat those arranged when you get there, distanced out. You pick larger or smaller sections for your family. And there should be plenty of room for you to bring your own lounge chair, yard chair, if you like the thoughts of that more than a folding chair, and you want a distance further, that, that is fine. Um, we'll be working on parking, and uh, kind of the idea would be that the younger you are, the further you park away. The older you are, the closer you get to park down at the FLC. And we'll have some golf carts and such to help you get from your car to your seat if you'd like uh, and we're going to observe communion but here's here's the, the selling point if we do it that way we can do it all together at one time rather than multiple services uh, or without risking um, proximity by piling into one room. I know the governor's changing some things and they look like things are getting much better. Um, but looking a month out, that seems to be the best case. Now, should it rain, we'll just move the whole thing in the gym. That's the next biggest space that we've got. And uh, we can use the bleachers spread out. We can use chairs on the floor spread out. If it looks like we're not spread out enough, we can spread out into the uh, fellowship hall side of the FLC and uh, it should work at least that's what we're going to pray toward with Christmas uh, the Lord knew better than we did he controls the weather and uh, we were unable to meet this time we'll plan we'll see what happens but uh, we're going to put details together in emails and send them to you so you'll know what when how maybe why all of those things together uh, so you'll know planning for Easter. But at this point, that's that's what we're going to try to do. And uh, again, to do it together. So, that said, let's us turn to uh, John chapter 19 today. And we are going to conclude what we began in the previous chapter with the trial of Jesus before his crucifixion. And we're working our way toward landing... On Easter morning with chapter 20, so we've got a few weeks in chapter 19. We'll look at the first 16 verses together today. Um, 
This will conclude the trial. When we finish, you'll see as we stop in verse 16, he'll be delivered over to them to be crucified. But let me read this for us. We'll ask the Lord to help us in our study. And then we'll look at it verse by verse. John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat and at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that you may heighten our senses, our concentration, Lord, our understanding. Lord, I ask that you help us to envision the man we sung about, the, the creator God, the redeemer God, the God to consummate our glory in eternity, but on trial at the hands of those he created. Lord, may we behold our God. And may you take full use of this time to reveal to us more about you in order to reveal about us more about ourselves. We thank you for this opportunity. And we ask this now in your name. Amen. Well, what we're going to do this morning... And I will say this up front as uh, we've spent, this will now be the second week 
going over the trial of Jesus. These are, these are technical passages. John is giving us eyewitness details. Uh, we're reading about legal proceedings, complete with legal language. We're brought along in an understanding of the Jews and their agenda and Pilate and his agenda. And then there's Rome's considerations. And then there is this ongoing plan put together before the foundation of the world known as the the work of Jesus, which is slowly approaching what we would call the finished work of Jesus. All of these things are going on. And because of the fact that these things are so familiar to us, the, the risk is that we just look at this as things we already know about. But what I want to do today, and and I'll endeavor uh, to wrap this up such a way as to give you something to take home, but let's stick with it through the details in order to allow John, the author, to make his point at the end. To look at all that he's painted and asking questions as to why he put it that way so we can see what he intended, all of which is under inspiration of God. So when we move over the chapter break from 18 to 19, since Pilate's already declared Jesus to be innocent, it's somewhat abruptly surprising to hear that he's going to have Jesus flogged. He's already said he's an innocent man, and that's not what you do. We know that. He should know that, but he does that. If we keep reading, though, we don't have to go that far. Um... We learn that this is nothing more than another scheme in his agenda, which for the most part seems clear he doesn't want to condemn this man. He wants to let him go. So this is, in some strange and cruel way, his attempt to not put him to death. It seems that Pilate ordered this beating that we read about in verse 1 thinking it would satisfy the Jews' demand that Jesus be punished and maybe even evoke some measure of sympathy. Um, Maybe that the people will see him this way and that this clamor for his crucifixion will be cooled. It's not unheard of in history where uh, cruel punishment was carried out publicly that the people watching would beg for mercy. But that's not what's going to happen here. Um, Perhaps you've heard from Easter Sunday's past. Depending on uh, how your teacher, your professor, your pastor went through these passages. And we, we visit them once a year. You may have heard that there's more than one type of, of Roman beating. There's actually three. Described by three different words. And ranging in three different levels of severity. Uh, there was the first, which was the the most uh, or the least uh, significant or brutal. Um, most of the time, this was uh, not at all a slap on the wrist. Rome, wrist, uh, <laughs> Rome didn't do that. Um, it carried a more severe warning, but the beating itself wasn't as bad as the other two. The one in the middle was considered a brutal beating. And this was because the warning would have been ignored. But this always was up against and less than a 
capital punishment. This was for those who were not sentenced to death. It wasn't designed to be something that would risk one's life. And then there was the the third one, which is the most brutal, the one we're most familiar with from pages of Scripture like this, where oftentimes the beating was fatal. And a lot of times we get confused in the number of lashes. That was a Jewish thing. And sometimes they would remind the Jews, hey, you know, according to our law, there's only so many times. With this type of beating, it went as far as the man thought the body could survive. And that was actually the purpose, to beat someone half to death. So by the time they get to the cross, it takes half as long. That could take days with an otherwise healthy body. So usually, this third beating, practically anywhere we see it in history, was always put together with crucifixion as the preliminaries in order to make it as brutal as absolutely possible. Now in this case, reading from John and also from Luke, and in order to make sense of the complete narrative, because this is just one of four different angles we understand the gospel from. you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And sometimes it's confusing, even in seminary, to try to line all those up, all those eyewitness accounts with the timetables and what happened and when and how. In this case, one way to make sense of all this is to understand that it's possible Jesus suffered two beatings. One after the verdict of crucifixion and one before to try to avoid it. Now, this is one of those things where we're kind of speculating between the lines of Scripture. But from John's perspective and Luke, who also talks about Pilate saying, he's innocent, I want to let him go, I'll punish him and let him go. That would never have been that third type of beating. Unless, of course, he's changing up the rules as he sees them, which we see him do right here in this passage. But be that as it may, that would be what starts what we see continue in verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, also a purple robe, and then mocking him as king of the Jews and striking him with their hands. At one level, Carson tells us here that this is really nothing other than barracks vulgarity. This is how uh, professional military men, maybe some that having had uh, a post at the arena, uh, this is how they tortured defenseless criminals. They were good at it, and it looks as though they enjoyed it. The thorns could have been spikes from the date palm, Those things are are about a foot long. Um, Doesn't say that, but that's a possibility. The purple robe was probably a military cloak there in the Antonio Fortress. And it wasn't meant to be looked at as official, but as as mockery. This This is dress up, as it were. The crown of thorns is supposed to be a joke. The robe is supposed to be a joke. And it looks as if... The way it's written in the Greek, the soldiers each take their turn lining up to kneel, hail Jesus as king of the Jews, and then strike him as they stand. So this is the way John is painting the picture 
And it's grisly already by verse 4, where John gives us a transitional piece. We talked about how you can chart this from inside, outside, inside, outside, because the Jews wouldn't go inside, so trials have been held inside, and Pilate's coming out to talk to the Jews, going in to talk to Jesus, back and forth and back and forth. Well, verse 4, he went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Verse 5, so Jesus comes out. He brings him out so the people can see what's taking place while he's been inside. Wearing the crown of thorns, wearing the purple robe. Pilate says to them, Behold the man, which is uh, in the Greek, eki homo, which is basically just a way to say, look at him. Once you see him, behold him. Everybody look at this. And you can kind of put together the, the point Pilate's trying to make. He's basically delivering his verdict here, which is a not guilty. And then dramatically presents Jesus, which at this point is an awful sight after the abuse he sustained. And as if he wants to make the people's choice, and it is their choice. They've got to choose between him and Barabbas, right? That's already been the terms. That's the deal. But it's like Pilate wants to make this as easy as possible. So he presents Jesus beaten and harmless and rather pathetically mocked on purpose to rub it in. This is the guy that you think is your king. He's nobody. And he doesn't deserve what you say he deserves. What's insane about all this, though, is that this man who's supposed to be the judge would do this to a man that he says is innocent in order uh, to perhaps increase his chances of surviving the whole ordeal. But that's what seems to be going through the mind of Pilate. But don't at all reserve any sympathy for this man just doing his job. Even with the language he's using, he's still uh, insulting the Jewish leaders at every turn. If he's mocking Jesus here, which he allows his men to do, he's no less mocking the Jewish authorities with the absolute same disgust. He regrets ever having been posted in this place. It's, it's been a difficult six years every step of the way. Now, from the account of John, the way he's telling the story, what we're looking at is the one he's described at the beginning as the Word who became flesh, the one through which the world has been made, who has come to his own, and now the prophecy from the first chapter of his own having nothing to do with him, is coming true right here in black and white. So verse 6, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they do not have at all the reaction that Pilate hoped they would have. They say, take him, crucify him. They say it twice, crucify him. Pilate says to them, and probably in, in a knee-jerk Reaction with the same, maybe increased level of volume. I'm trying to imagine the way this would happen dramatically. But he says again, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. And then something changes here. It'll take me a few minutes to explain what's going on. 
John's writing so fast and there's so much behind each of these lines. He says, take him yourself. They say, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. So this is not unlike what happened in the previous chapter in verse 31 where they bring him to Pilate. And Pilate says, uh, what charges do you bring against this man? And they say, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him to you to start with. And basically what Pilate is saying is, listen, I know and you know that you can't carry out a death sentence. You need me for that. So you brought him to me. But if you bring him to me, I'm going to judge him according to my law, not yours. And my verdict is the one that stands, not yours. And at this point... Much further downstream, he's saying the same thing. You want him crucified. You brought him to me, and I have given you my verdict. My verdict is he's innocent. But you won't accept that verdict. So if you want him dead, do it yourself. So they're kind of at an impasse. And what they do here is they cough up a card they've had in their pocket. One that's very important to them, but they didn't think was very important to Rome. So they're going to have to change tactics here, fearing that the promise of their strategy to paint Jesus as a political danger to Rome, they're going to actually betray their fear of this man in religious terms. Up until now, they thought it wise only to stress the political notions as they thought this would prove most damaging to Jesus in the eyes of Rome, right? If you're going to get what you want from this guy you hate, you've got to kind of play ball his way. Well, that's not working. So they're going to try to play ball their way. So they tell Pilate, according to their law, Jesus was guilty of death for claiming deity. Right? He claimed to be the Son of God. And we kind of talked about this stuff last week. What difference would it make for Jesus to say something like, my kingdom's not of this world. Well, now he's, the Jews are now talking about something that is otherworldly. This man has made himself the son of God. So how will he respond to this? Um, they're telling Pilate, according to their law, he's claimed deity. And at this point, we've just kind of got to speculate. Because we can only read into these characters as much as we have details in history to give us inclination to do so. But is Pilate anywhere as superstitious as he is cynical? Because a lot of these high-profile Roman leaders were very superstitious. They had all kinds of gods. And you wanted to be on the right side of the right one at the right time. As a power-hungry nation, they're always paranoid. And superstition isn't far from paranoia. Perhaps some of these men think, well, hey, let's not leave this card in our pocket. We might as well play it. Maybe he's superstitious. Maybe it'll bother him. He's just beaten someone who has supernatural powers, powers of deity. You know, they believed in such things as demigods. Well, look what happens. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. It's not just that he's afraid 
In fact, that seems to be new information. We knew he was aggravated. This says he's afraid. He's been afraid. He's now much more afraid. So evidently he is superstitious, at least to some extent. What does he do? He entered into the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? So he wants to know more about this son of God business. Jesus gave him no answer. Doesn't surprise us. Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Then he somewhat threatens him. Don't you know that I have authority to release or crucify you? Jesus answered him, you wouldn't have any authority if it hadn't been given from above. And then this about his sin being actually lesser than the greater sin of the one who delivered him. So he got a lot of work on here. Back inside again, Pilate looks to investigate. Jesus isn't talking. Same thing from Mark's gospel. They say he's silent, but it's not an absolute silence because Jesus does talk. He just doesn't answer that specific question, similar to before. It's no secret by now that Pilate is much more interested in political maneuvering and saving his own hide. So it doesn't surprise us that Jesus does not take the opportunity to educate this man here at this point, as he did before, as to his kingdom and his men who wouldn't fight so Jesus is speaking, but there's not a lot of information. And the point here is that since Pilate has no real interest in understanding, Jesus gives no real answer and explanation. That's something that is, I don't know if you'd rather use the word sobering or terrifying in Scripture. How there are sometimes Jesus goes great length to talk to folks. Especially those who receive his words. And then there are other times where he has little or nothing to say to someone. Who seems to have no interest in hearing what he has to say. Or entertaining ideas as to who he claims to be. Um, I remember as a kid being absolutely terrified of the statement. Sinning away one's day of grace. That there's such a thing as God just having a point to where he's had enough of a man's stubbornness or lack of interest or disengagement. I don't know, however you want to describe it. The thought of that terrified me. When I got older, I had someone tell me, it should terrify you. But you need to know that if such a thing exists, there's only one person who knows. And controls that. And that would be God. And he's not telling. His scripture that he gave you. Still tells you there's time. And there's chance. But you got to do something with it. Pilate's not. So until he does. And whether he did. The, the Coptic Christians believe that he was converted. Uh, but that would be tradition. Certainly not biblical record. So this silence here, if we get any emotion or, 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 or any type of insight as to what he thinks or might feel about this, it'd probably be irritation. He seems quite irritated that Jesus wouldn't answer him. That's why he reminds Jesus as if Jesus should know and he needs to remind him that, hey, I have the authority to release you or let you go. Now, actually, Pilate's speaking truth there. Now, the... 
Jewish leaders had not spoken the truth. They didn't. But in this case, he's, he has said truth as far as the systems of man go. Um, but as far as Jesus here and his answer, Jesus takes the opportunity to remind Pilate that that authority he has, he wouldn't have unless it was given to him from above. So here again, Jesus is standing up to the accusations and giving nothing, surrendering nothing, denying nothing. And what this would mean to a guy like Pilate, I don't know. Maybe he would think, well, yeah, he's a superstitious man. It all pans out somehow that I'm in this position and you're in that position. But what Jesus says next is even more confusing. That is, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, this is a notorious verse for being complicated and challenging as far as interpreting it. As can be seen, if you've got a stack of commentaries, you're going to find some variation in the way that they look at this. And answering the question, who is the greater sinner? Who's the one that handed Jesus over? Um, Actually, the best way to look at it and to stay out of the weeds is just to consider some of the things that seem obvious from the passage and leave the rest to those who have much more time to study the backstory aside from the scriptures as we do. Number one, Jesus doesn't exonerate Pilate. That's clear in this verse. That's of worth. It's not as if he's off the hook, even though he's lost. We talked about last time the former. Times of ignorance God winked at, but not anymore. He sent his son. Pilate's standing in front of his son. So he's not exonerated, even though his sin seems to be looked at in a relatively lesser form of seriousness than what it's compared to. So uh, the second is just to admit that the identity of the person guilty of the greater sin is uncertain. We don't know who he is or they are. Uh, A lot of people conjecture that it's Judas. Judas is dead at this point. Likely. You know what he did. He went out and hanged himself. So he's really not part of the situation anymore. Um, Caiaphas is no longer in a dominant role. He's the one that thought it smart and expedient that one man die for the whole nation. Then you've got uh, those that think that this is Satan. Problem with it being Satan, which seems to be a good candidate, is that how in the world would you compare Satan's sin to Pilate's sin? And it, it, it just doesn't wash. Though Satan's would seem to be worse, but not comparable. Which prompts some to settle on the Jewish authorities, as likely the one he's talking about. It's these guys who have the scriptures and should know better far more responsible than Pilate would be that would be speculation not interpretation though but I mention that just to say that hey I I have the same questions about this text as anyone who's looking at it in their lap reading it just the same verse 12 from then on Pilate sought to release him but the Jews cried out if you release this man you are not Caesar's friend Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
I like to chart on a graph mentally the dramatic rise and fall of the things said and the meaning behind them. This is where it seems to all come to a head at the conclusion of this trial. And this is that card that the Jews have been keeping. And they've just played another hand, but this is, this is the, the rook, <laughs> if there ever was one. Doesn't mean that Pilate's grasped what Jesus has done by saying that, you know, he's convinced that this man should be turned loose. Though that's what he thinks. Doesn't mean he believes what Jesus is saying. And it's at this point the Jews bring out their heavy weapon. And Pilate knows that this is not an empty threat. Look at the threat. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. This does benefit from a little backstory. What What is going on here? What have they said? And what does it mean to Pilate? And why do we immediately in the following verses see a total change of tune? He doesn't think he's guilty. He's afraid. He's more afraid. He's seeking all the more to release him. And then all of a sudden, he hands him right over, has him flogged and crucified. What did they say? And what does it mean? Well, as far as Pilate goes and his relationship to the present emperor at that point in time would have been Tiberius. Um, we know Tiberius to have been a very worrisome man uh, who was always looking over his shoulder, very quick to entertain suspicious Activity or suspicions regarding subordinates and quick to ruthlessly punish them once confirmed. This is, this is a, a, a picture in history of this guy Tiberius that is basically Pilate's boss, right? And we talked last week about the run-ins that he has had with the Jewish people at his post in Palestine and their grievances that get back to Rome where Tiberius has actually, on more than one situation, written back to Pilate and say, knock it off. We want to keep peace there. It's more important than what these people think of you or what you think of yourself. So he's already got some strikes against his permanent record. And then there's this business about a man named Sejanus. That's S-E-J-A-N-U-S, Sejanus. Who actually almost uh, orchestrated his own ascent to the throne and would have taken Tiberius' place. He worked long and hard at it and he was good because he was trusted, very trusted by this man Tiberius, when his plotting was uncovered by one of Tiberius's relatives in a letter, history tells us there's this very elaborate uh, plan to get rid of him, uh, Sejanus, that is, and that they wrote this long letter full of a long section of political gobbledygook to be read in the Senate on the Senate floor while certain men who heard the right code language in the beginning of the letter, went into the Praetorian Guard and made sure they could not revolt. And at the very end of it was this very articulate, 
denunciation of this man Sejanus and his arrest. And then to find out that all the people that were loyal to him hated his guts. They killed him that day. Only problem was, Sejanus was the one who appointed Pilate to his position. And history seems to tell us that Sejanus was quite anti-Semitic himself. And that he used Pilate to carry out those things. His plan was to get rid of the Jews once and for all. But that wasn't politically expedient for Tiberius who would tell Pilate, hey, knock it off. But depending on when this man Sejanus met his untimely death, and being that the little words, friend of Caesar, was like a spoken badge of honor to the men who had gained his favor. I don't know if any of you watch, because most of the films in this genre are absolutely unfit for public consumption even with your Christian hazmat suit on mob films they talk about being a a friend of theirs or a friend of ours it's just a little phrase but it points you on inside or outside of what may be a very precarious situation here's this guy who lives every day trying to keep the peace his position, his power, and his life. And to hear these people who've already made it abundantly clear, they know the emperor's address. They say, you let this man go. You're no friend of Caesar. Because no friend of Caesar would allow anyone to say that he's a god. It's all Pilate needs to hear. At this point, it's... it's, it's Jesus' funeral or his own. So he really has no choice. But all that said, let's not miss what it takes for these, these Jewish officials to make that power play. Look at it. When Jesus... Verse 13. So Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat. Here's his indication that the plot, the ploy has worked. At a place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, Gabbatha. All these are details. He gives us a time stamp preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. All of that has to do with the setting but the purpose for the setting is to just heighten what is said. Behold your king. This is the last time he brings Jesus out. He's sitting down in the official chair to make his verdict. And really, we could spend time on what is meant by the stone pavement, where it is, what have we dug up that looks like it might be that, preparation of the Passover, which day is that, six hours at Roman time or Jewish time. All of this has to do with the setting and I don't know that we should ever try to be more technical than the men who wrote this who did not wear a watch. And they're looking at the sun in the sky. And they're looking at different ways. So we'll leave that for another time. It's all to set up the indictment, followed by a request for punishment, and then followed by a verdict. Look at verse 15. And we'll get down to what it took these Jews to make the power play they've just executed. They cried out away with him. 
Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? Again, that's dripping with all the sarcasm and disgust. He can spit with, with veins in his neck, bulging. The chief priest answered, Here it is, out of their own mouths. We have no king but Caesar. So, Pilate is mocking their status as vassals by saying that this beaten, bloodied prisoner is the only king they're ever likely to have. You sure you want to waste him? The Jews see that and quickly insert themselves in front of Pilate's loyalty to Tiberius by making that statement. Hey, we're more concerned about being friends of Caesar than you are. Because if you were, you wouldn't do what you're doing. Preserve his own power, he hands him over. But I think this might answer that question. Who has the greater sin? The guy who spends his life politically posturing himself for his own survival or the group in order to execute their Messiah would say that they have no king. But Caesar, what is more blasphemous than a false god? So this is what they've done. And here's where I, I, I think we've, we've uh, fought gallantly in the arena of uh, history, academics, and uh, thorough study of the events as John has given them to us. What do we make of it? John's writing all this down, but where, where does he leave our head? Where, where, does, where does the story take us? What is the thought that he wants to linger in our heads so far? And I think it's this. There are many, but this one seems to be something he's been working for, on for paragraphs now. If we were to go back to the beginning of chapter 18, and this is where we started several weeks ago after our Christmas break and then after spending some time in Habakkuk in order to line us up uh, with Easter. When we began studying 18, we've, we've got the situation where Jesus is to be betrayed and Judas has gone and set everything into motion and it's dark. They've left the upper room. So where do they go? Where are they going to hide out? Certainly not a place that Judas would know about, right? They need a bunker. They didn't go to a bunker. They went to the garden that was set aside for their prayer. Exactly where Judas would know where they were. And what did we say at that point? What's John telling us? Well, if he's telling us anything, he's telling us Jesus is in complete total control of the situation because if he had any doubts, he surely wouldn't go where he's surely to be apprehended, right? The point was, Jesus has got everything under control. And then when we went a little further, and the, the band of soldiers with their torches and their weapons and their lamps uh, show up, he comes out of this little gated garden and confronts them and asks them, who are you looking for? Again, as if to show he's the one in charge here. And it's not even at that. He asked them that question twice. Once they fall to the ground, then they get back up. He asked them again so that they can say out of their mouths twice, Jesus of Nazareth. And once they've said that, then he's able to say, okay, if that's who you're looking for, let the rest of these guys go. 
So with their own words, he's able to secure his disciples' safety. Who's in charge here? Sounds like Jesus is. Now when they get to the house of Annas, we looked at this a few weeks, you've got these charges being thrown against Jesus and he is able with truth in very few words to stand up to everything and surrender nothing, right? And we talked about how it's interesting. John splits that story with what's going on outside with Peter who's being confronted with accusations and has no control or confidence and is denying everything. The switch takes place twice. We listen to Annas, we listen to Peter. We listen to Annas, we listen to Peter. Both times the contrast is vivid. Jesus is in control and Peter's not. And then when we start in with what we looked at last week, you've got Jesus speaking to Pilate, who's the representative of the known world power at the moment. And then this conversation having to do with truth. And here you've got a witness, not actually a defendant, but a witness to the truth. He tells Pilate, this is the reason why I was born, why I was sent to this planet, to bear witness to the truth. The actual case being tried here is whether or not God is true and every man a liar. And Jesus is there to bear witness to the truth. So who's on trial? Pilate. Jesus is in total control. Even as they abuse his body with mockery and crown of thorns and a robe and a beating... In front of Pilate, as one who, in the case of God, brings against the world the charge of sin and betrayal, Jesus is here for the truth. And then finally, what we learn today, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you. In fact, you're small potatoes. There's actually someone who's in more trouble than you. Who's had more light. And more responsibility. The whole thing is about control. Who's in charge. And it's at this point that it it seems, you know, quite the layup for the Bible student. To just say, okay... Do I feel like I'm in control? Now you can subdivide that. We can start with a big chunk. You know, uh, uh, cosmically, no. Uh, As a U.S. citizen, no. As a child in my family's house, not yet. Maybe as an adult at work, yeah, I own the place. Or... I don't know. What about at the doctor? You feel like you're in control at the doctor. You tell him what to tell you. <laughs> I tried to. I really did. It's not broke. <laughs> Even after the picture. Well, I don't know if I see it. It looks small. It's not in two pieces. It'll just heal back, won't it? What about in just control of the daily circumstances of life? Um, whether or not you'll get what you want to eat. At the time you want it, for the price you want it. 
We could, we could be smart Alex about this for the rest of the afternoon. Where is it that we get the idea that we think we're in control? Because really deep down we all want to believe that, right? Even if it's I can control my balance across time over all the averages in the face of physics. That's absurd. This is the cost of adventure, right? But as far as calling the shots of your life, making the decisions, little ones, big ones across the board, who do you think is in charge? Ultimately, we act like we are. Where do we get that? Now, last week we talked about Jesus as a witness against the lies of the world as the way, the truth, and the life, right? Truth is on trial. Jesus is here as a witness Okay, where did the lie come from? Oh, I don't know, back in Genesis? Well, let's read it again, just so we're, in con- we're all on the same page. Where do we get this idea? We're in control. The devil says, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll know what he knows. You'll be as powerful as he is. It's the original lie. That's where we get it. And that's where we're fully capable of making the same mistake that Pilate did, including those Jewish rulers and everyone else. Until we're ready to say, I am Jonah, you know, from the summer, or I am Peter, or I am... Judas, I am Pilate in a million ways over a, a million minutes, hours, or seconds. I say away with him when I want to do my own thing. I would never say crucify him. I know too much of the Bible. Why would I say, you don't need to say that in order to deny Jesus. But let's not forget what John has already said. Because in the first 18 verses, John is telling us, okay? This is what I'm going to write about. And then I'm going to spend 20 chapters or so explaining what I mean by it, right? Now, at this point in chapter 19, he's illustrated that there's no one in control other than Jesus, including Pilate and everyone else. But in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 12, John told us this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How's that going to work? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the same man who can say you wouldn't have any of that authority if it wasn't given to you could also look at Peter and say you didn't really say that. That's actually the voice of God. Or get behind me Satan. (laughs) That's, That's not right at all. So what do we make of this? I think it's a brilliant picture. 
Who's the one who's free in this episode? The man who's chained and beaten and bloodied? Well, he looks like the prisoner. No, they're backwards. Who's the most enslaved of the whole story? Wouldn't you say it's the guy who can't make his own decision unless he wants to sign his own death warrant? All it takes, because of the way he's handled his life and the other people that he participates in government with, all his enemy has to say are three stupid little words, friend of Caesar, and it's done. That man's shackled and enslaved. He just doesn't know it, but he's still able to strut around on the world stage. And those of us that think all we've got to do is come to church and put on a suit and act a certain way and we're closer to the kingdom of God by our own behavior doesn't understand what depravity is. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So enslaved to sin that we couldn't be any more enslaved. And unless the one who's telling Pilate, listen, you wouldn't have what you have if it wasn't given to you. We wouldn't have our salvation if it wasn't given to us. Certainly if it wasn't paid for on our behalf, we can't do that ourselves. So who's in charge? I sure hope it's the Lord Jesus. I hope that's what you call him. I hope you've long since given up on the idea that you can fit yourself for the presence of God in eternity. Who's on trial? Me and you. But we've got a star witness to bear witness to the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Those given the right, the authority to become sons, heirs, have everything he has. So that sets us up perfectly to pick up next week. With so they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross. Which really is ours. But that's for next week. Let me pray for us. Then we're going to close our service. Father in heaven. Lord I ask that you will find some. Measure of usefulness in. What. Should always feel like a. Pitiful attempt. To explain. Such wondrous truth. Lord, I'm, I'm sure of the fact that next week we'll, we'll all feel a little less equipped. Perhaps more, maybe massively more ill-equipped to even sort through these things. So Lord, take your word that is known by the world to be foolishness. But make it to us salvation. Lord, may these things take root in our thinking and in our hearts. Having chewed on them, Lord, may, may they provoke the change in us. May they bend our knee, our will. May our lips confess. May we behold our King, the Lamb of God, who came to take away our sin. Thank you for the, the story of Easter. Thank you for the week we look forward to and our attempt to gather together under your name and under your word. Bless each of us. Seal this to our hearts. May you be true 
every man a liar. We ask this in your name. Amen.